Amen. This morning as we uh, enter into a new ministry year, so to speak, our school years, our ministry year, uh, we're going to start a new series this week on marriage. We'll be covering it over the next six, seven, eight weeks, some other things intervene along the way, but we'll do six or seven uh, on uh, talking about marriage. My wife and I celebrated 30 years in June. Uh, I don't know what the prerequisite is before you have credibility, but I'm, I'm hoping I've crossed the threshold that I have something to say um, of that. So uh, 30, 30 years, and we dated for six. So we've been together some time. As, uh, as we think about marriage, I, you know, for our own marriage, there is uh, a covenant, a lifetime covenant is a, is a, is a significant thing. Um, and I want to talk about that this morning as we talk about marriage, the foundation of it, sort of rock bottom, not rock bottom in the, you know, hitting rock bottom, but only rock bottom in that when you build a foundation, you need to build it on something solid. And, and, and the solid rock bottom of marriage is, is the covenant, the fact that it is a covenant. And that's what I want to talk about this morning out of Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, just a couple of verses here. Hear then the word of God. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why? Why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and your wife, the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning into your presence. We want to know you and to love you and to serve you. And Father, we thank you for your word that is living and true. And that here you speak into our lives a truth that is bigger than us, bigger than our culture, bigger than uh, any culture. Uh, you speak your word, the way that you have made the world, in us in your image. So this morning we come to, uh, to you, and we long for you to speak into our lives, into our marriages, into us and our relationships here as a church and in as, as a community. Come near. In the name of Jesus, we ask, amen. Let me first say to those who are here this morning who may not be married, um, why is this series still valuable to you? Anytime that I do something like that, you speak on a topic that you know may not directly, in a sense, apply to every person exactly where they are. And I would say um, that even though it may not, you may not be married at this moment, there are many ways that it can and should, I think, equip you as a follower of Christ. You might still get married. If you've not been married, you might still get married. If you've been married, you might yet be married again. And so, you know, I wouldn't wait until you're married to learn the things that make for a good marriage. I would be building those things into your life now, into the ways of you think and dream. But if, if you're not married yet, you also have friends who are married. You're in a small group, perhaps, with people who are married. There are people all around you who are married. And how can we uh, counsel one another and encourage one another and speak truth into each other's lives and hold each other accountable if we don't 
all have the good, strong sense of God's word about an issue. And so for you just to be a part of a community where we love one another that way, we need to grow and to learn in these areas. And, and maybe you have children or grandchildren. I think what a beautiful and wonderful thing it would be is the opportunity to in our children as they, you know, I have two children now who are married. They both got married three months apart in one summer, you know, so two and done, but heck of a summer. Uh, but, you know, but now, that, now they're walking in this and, and, and the privilege of being able to speak into their lives and to come along them and to encourage my son and, and, and my daughter and their marriages and looking, you know, and even to our grandchildren, what a blessing it would be, you know, at some point to have the opportunity to gently and lovingly speak into our grandchildren. But so God has to build these things into us, even if we're not immediately using them. And I would also say one more, um, it, is, it is healthy for God to reveal areas of past failure and brokenness. And sometimes if we're not married, you know, that there are reasons in our, in our past. But God wants to, as we learn about marriage, even if we're, we're on the other side of it that way, that um, God wants to reveal those places because he wants to heal us in those places. It's an opportunity for healing, an opportunity to see those things and for God to lead us to repentance and to experience his grace and to, and to go forward. So I think even that way, as God speaks those things into our lives, his kindness leads us to repentance. The idea of marriage as a covenant is pretty much lost in our secular culture. Marriage is a covenant. In fact, in recent years, marriage altogether has really fallen out of fashion. And interestingly, it's falling out in, in both young and the older age group. And they say that actually the largest growing segment that are, that are living together now is the older uh, segment of our population. Now, it's still the smallest group, you know, who, who have that going on, living together, cohabitating. It's still the smallest group, but it's grown by 75% in the last couple of decades, that, that group. And, and the reason on the one end, young folks, you know, are, uh, are sometimes commitment shy, not ready to make that kind of a commitment, but, you know, would like to have some of the benefits of, of those things. And so they, so they, you know, we're going to, to do it this way or they want to try it on. You have a lot of folks who just say, we want to see, you know, why well, you wouldn't buy a car without driving it first, would you? You know, so, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of that. There's a logic to that, you know, and on the, on the other end, older folks, why are, why are they doing it? And one reason is because there's such a high divorce rate. There's so many folks who have experienced traumatic and painful divorces. And so they're gun shy. I want to jump back into something of that level. And so, you know, we'll do it this way. Or, or it's complicated. Sometimes for older folks to get married, you know, if they got children from previous marriages or issues of inheritance and finances and, you know, and at that stage of life, and there are a lot of folks who just find it easier, keep all that separate. And, you know, there's a logic to it. But it's fallen out of fashion. It's like a corset. You know what a corset is? Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's old-fashioned, and it's binding, right? And that's, <laughs> right? And, that, and that's the way a lot of folks see marriage these days, you know? It's, uh, <laughs> it's old-fashioned and binding. But there's a logic to this thinking. I probably shouldn't have put that image in your head. I don't know. <laughs> Come back to me now. We're, 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 we're serious. There's a logic to these views. If you think that marriage is just a social construct, 
right? If you think it's just a social construct, something that was, you know, created and imposed by past generations and, and it served for a while for whatever reason, and in our day and age, it's, you know, it's just a cultural artifact that we can do away with, you know? And so in the young and the old frames, you can see it's complicated or it's hard or it's traumatic or I want to, you know, there's a logic to the culture that way if there's not something else that defines it and speaks into it, if that's all that it is. And I'm here to remind us today that the covenant of marriage is not a cultural artifact, but it's God's design and purpose. It's part of the warp and woof of creation that he has made us for each other, that we would leave our father and mother, Genesis chapter 2, and be cleaving one to another in marriage. We see in verse 13, he says, this is the second thing that you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and with groaning because he no longer is regarding your offering or accepting it with favor from your hand. You're, right, there's something wrong in, in, in their worship. He's not paying attention to your worship, to their sacrifices. And you know, God is not responding in the same way, accepting their offerings. He's not happy with their worship. Right? In other words, their relationship with God is malfunctioning. There's something off in their relationship with God. It's not healthy. There's, there's a barrier. There's an impediment in their worship. And God tells them why, that, that our worship of God has everything to do with who we are and the life that we live before him. And sometimes people want to separate those two things out, come to worship on Sunday, give them my worship, and then go during the week, and, and, and our work, and our family, or our marriage, and those things are, you know, sort of separate issues, and they're not. God says that who you are all week long is, is everything, that worship is not something you do for an hour a week. Worship is how you live before him, every day in every context of life, in everything that we do, in our marriages at the core. He says that when your marriage is messed up, he says it's malfunctioning, that it actually can, it actually can be a barrier in your relationship to God. And that's what he says in verse 14. He says, why is, is this relationship malfunctioning? He says, you say, why? I don't, I don't understand. And he says, look to your home, because the Lord says the witness, because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, even though she is your companion and the wife of the covenant, your wife by covenant, right? And that, and that is the biblical understanding of marriage. And it's, so, so it's not a, a social construct to be taken and leave and left at will, but a given uh, of God from creation, from Genesis chapter 2 to here, where he defines it and says so clearly, your companion and your wife by covenant. That's what happens when we get married. And he says, when you're faithless in your marriages, specifically with this covenant, the Lord, Yahweh, that is his covenant name, uh, the name that he uses with his people, Lord Yahweh, he says, was a witness to the marriage covenant. And interesting, it's in, the, it's in the past tense, isn't it? He says, because the Lord was a witness between you and, your, and the wife of your youth. Like he's at the time when you were young, at the, at the wife of your youth, he was a witness to the covenant that you made. Right? He, he was a witness there. And he stands now as a witness at this stage of their there, there are marriages that are falling apart and there is faithlessness. And it says, now as they're breaking covenant, he still stands as a witness. 
because he witnessed at the beginning and he stands then in that sense as the covenant uh, enforcer, so to speak. So I just want to drill down into the idea then of, and spend most of our time just talking about drilling down into the idea that marriage here that he says is a covenant and that God is a witness to that covenant and so that it's bigger than all of us and God has purposes in it. If he's the witness, he is witnessing that the covenant is kept in the sense that it's meant to be, that he purposes and determines. So marriage is a covenant. We'll just talk about what is a covenant. Now, I don't want to dig. You could, we could do a whole series of sermons on covenant in the Scripture and the Old Testament. Covenants come in many shapes and sizes. There's the covenant of God with his people and on religious terms, but there's also civil and social and, and family covenants like this. And So let's just boil down that a covenant and its most basic idea are people coming together in a formal, structured relationship. Right? When you make a covenant, we're, making it, we're, we're formalizing our relationship. It's going to be structured now. Now, what structures it? What structures it is the promises and the vows that you make. So now we've bound ourselves together by a set of promises. We've made a covenant together, giving our solemn promise. So the covenant binds people together on an agreed-on set of promises, privileges, and responsibilities. We have formalized our relationship. And it's interesting that we take vows in all three of the major institutions in our, in our country and in the world. That we take them at both, and, and even these are, I think, our biblical institutions from the government, right, down to the, the church and to the family. And we think strong families make strong churches, strong churches make strong cultures or societies over which we're governed. But we see vows in all of these places, don't you? Like in the government, if you join the military... You take a vow, and they take it very seriously. Um, you, 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 you stand and you say the words, and you've made a relationship, and it's defined, and it's serious. And to go AWOL, you can be court-martialed, and ultimately, once upon a time, you could be executed for not keeping faith with your vow, your covenant. We see it in the legal. If you're a judge taking office, he takes a vow, he says the words. If you're getting up to give testimony, you say the words, I solemnly swear to tell the truth. You've, you've made a vow and you have said with this court, I now have a relationship and if I break it by lying, there are consequences. We see it in the government, we see it in the church. We saw Greg just a couple of weeks ago as he was installed as associate pastor and we asked him a bunch of questions. He took a series of vows. Do you promise to do certain things? And he created a relationship between himself and the church that he serves. We see it in church membership, and this too was a week or two ago, where we had new members, our communicants, and another family as they take it, and, we, and they took a series of vows. I promise to support the church in its worship, in its work. I promise to support its worship, to be here. And, and it's work to, to give and to serve. I promise that I will, I will take it seriously and be a part. We have a series of vows that we take. And so in marriage, it's, it's the, in the family, there is our vows as well. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I wanted to take another set of vows just as sort of an example to put alongside as we think about it and what it means and the vows that we took or that we may take or that our children are taking. The presidential oath of office. When the president assumed his office, he, he makes a vow. 
before the American people and before those who are already in office. It defines his relationship with the American people. And in many ways, the vow that he takes becomes his core job description. And that's true in all of them. And it's true of the vows you take in marriage. It becomes your core job description. You said these are things you're going to do. At the very least, those are the things you need to do. Because you said you would. You promised. You vowed. And so the president says this. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Let's leave that up for just a second, if you will. You see him saying, I do solemnly swear. I solemnly vow. I, I seriously promise. You know, however you want to say it. He is, he is taking a vow, and he says that he's going to do what? Faithfully and to the best of his ability. Right? He says, I'm going to do it seriously. I'm going I'm, 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 as my job, faithfully and to the best of my ability, I'm going to do certain things. What are you going to do? Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. He swears solemnly to do certain things faithfully and to the best of his ability. In the marriage covenant, it's the same thing. You stand up and you swear and you promise. You vow to faithfully and to the best of your ability to do certain things, right? That's the covenant. We bind ourselves together by a mutual set of promises that we're intended to keep. And so let me give you some vows. These are the vows I used in the last wedding that I... Uh, performed, did, officiated, uh, the vows that you take here, here, and uh, we can leave them up for a second, but here are the vows. It might take two slides. I take you to be my wedded wife or husband. From this day forward, I promise to love you, and to honor you, to comfort you, and to forgive you as God has forgiven me. I will always be faithful to you for better, for worse, for richer, when it's poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. And therefore, I receive you as God's special gift to me, and this promise, I promise before him. See, if marriage is a social construct, none of this has any meaning. In fact, the end there, it would simply end as a social construct until I don't feel like it anymore which is the way it goes, right? It's just a social construct. Don't have a sense of covenant, or in other words, that it's bigger than myself, that God has something to do with it, and so I fell in, I'll fall out, you know, I, I entered in I'll, until I don't feel like it anymore. Sometimes I wonder about people who don't go to church, and I can just honestly say it's confusing to me that don't go to church, don't really have, in that sense, that religious piece of the pie, but... but Two-thirds of them, when they get married, come to the church looking for a pastor to marry them and to take vows like that. And and it is a little bit confusing to me in terms of what those vows mean, in terms of do you understand what this means? Jesus said in Matthew 19.6, as he was being questioned by a crowd about, and the leaders of the day, about divorce. And after giving what the scripture says, have you not read, you know, have you not, don't know that God said that a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife and two will become one flesh. And he says, and he concludes after quoting the scripture, he gives his own commentary on it. And he says, therefore, they are no longer two, but one. And so Jesus's summary of the whole thing is, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. 
Right? He's affirming, confirming what, what God is saying here in, in Malachi 2 in many ways. At a wedding, when you invite guests, they're not spectators. I've recently started telling them that. You know you're not a bunch of spectators here. You are a group of chosen witnesses along with God of a covenant making. Right? One of the first things I say at every wedding, I say, friends and family, we are gathered here today in the presence of God and all these witnesses to join these two together in holy marriage. And then we start talking about what it means. But we've called together, yes, all the most important people in our life, our family and our friends, yes, to share the day with us, but also those people who are closest to us stand as witnesses to the vows and promises we have made, which is why married or not, we need to understand it. So because though you, do you go to weddings? You know, then, then you are a witness and in some ways have a relationship to the, all the people whose weddings you've been to. I want us to notice the positive thrust of these vows. Right, men, you promised to faithfully and to the best of your ability, I didn't put the words in there, but it's implied throughout, right, that you're going to faithfully and to the best of your ability strive to be the best husband you can be, which is what those vows add up to. If you do those vows, you will be the best husband. You will. If you do it to the best of your ability, seriously, to love and to honor and to cherish and to forgive, you'll be the best husband and you promised that you would. To love your wife, to honor and cherish her. Ladies, you promised faithfully to strive to be the best wife that you can be, to love and honor your husband and to respect him, you promised. This is important, this positive thrust of what you promised, because so often these days I hear people talk of their vows very negatively in the sense of what they're not doing, i.e., I'm not divorcing her, I'm not divorcing him, right? I'm keeping my vow, right? Some of them will say, man, it's been ugly, but I'm keeping my vow by not divorcing her, by not divorcing him. My friends... It is not your vow. That's the duration of your vow. Till death do us part is the duration of your vow. But your vows have a positive thrust. It's not that you're not going to leave them. It's that you're going to love them. Cherish them. Honor them. Forgive them. Right? They're positive. You've, you've promised what you're going to do. And yes, you did say, if you were any vows like this, the duration. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, when you promise to love your spouse, my friends, you made a promise. Promise to love you. And you promise to love your spouse. See, we live in a culture, too, when they come and they take those vows, if they're not in church reading their Bibles or have any sense of it, it's a very vague idea. To love, I, I'm sure I love her. I love her. Got a funny feeling right here. You know? I, you know, it's a very vague idea when I say, yeah, I love her, till I don't. Um, 
until I don't feel like it anymore, which is often where it goes. So what does it mean when we say, you have vowed, and we just get to the very positive side, you vowed to love your spouse. Let's just keep it that simple. You vowed to love her. You vowed to love him. See, the Bible won't let you get off with vagueness, (laughs) right? The Bible gets down to brass tacks. It gets down to very specifics. 1 Corinthians 13, you know it. It's read at almost every wedding. But it's almost read like an artifact. When it's meant to be the content of your vow, you're vowing to love them, right? You're going to stand there and say to her, so-and-so, by name, I, Robert James Johnson, take you, Lynn. I promise to love you. And love is patient and love is kind. That's what I'm promising. That's what you promised. Patience. Kindness. Love does not envy. It does not boast. You wouldn't be arrogant and proud. It's not arrogant and rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. (laughs) I promise to not be irritable. (laughs) Or resentful. Or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It loves, bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. In fact, love, can you believe it says this? It never ends. What kind of a statement is that? Look around you. When you promise to love your wife, when you promise to love your husband, you promise to be patient and kind and gentle. Early years of my marriage, they married 30 years. We married right out of college. I was 24, she was 23. I was immature in more ways than one. As immature, I think, as a man, immature as a Christian. We got married within three months. We got married in June. We moved in July, started a new job in August, found out we were pregnant, bought a house, found out we were pregnant in August, September. Um, rough first year, this immature man. I had no idea what I was getting into. (laughs) Do any of us? I mean, really? Four months. Finish college, get married, move to another state, buy a house, start two new jobs, get pregnant. And off we go, right? I had no idea. I was young and immature. I discovered very quickly I have no idea how to love. My wife tried to tell me, you're not patient and you're not gentle. I didn't believe her. I really didn't. I thought she was the problem. I told her she was the problem. You need counseling. I'm telling you God's honest truth. Right? I, I, I didn't, like, here's the thing in a marriage, and we're going to do this in a whole week down the road, so come back for that one. Um, but here's the thing in a marriage. Your spouse is a mirror. Your spouse is a mirror, and one of the most difficult things about marriage is that she begins to unmask you. You start to see yourself through her eyes. And frankly, you don't like what she's seeing. And so you're pretty sure she's seeing it wrong, and that's why she needs counseling. Or he needs counseling. I mean, now, you know, if you're a woman, you'll hear me now. 
You think he needs, you know, you think he needs counseling. He's clearly the problem here. Well, that's the problem is that it unmasks you. There's nowhere to hide. They begin to see you as you really are. I mean, you know, you can't hide it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every month, every year. They know you, and they're trying to tell you about you. And frankly, I didn't want to hear it. And I just thought it was flat out wrong. I promise not to be arrogant or rude, condescending or righteous. Promise not to insist on my own way and to always be right. And when you begin to see yourself, to get this intimate feedback on your character from one who knows it best. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When God finally let me begin to see myself, to start repenting and to pursue and to pray and to memorize Jesus says, Let, come on to me, and I will give you rest for your souls, but come unto me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. And so I memorize that scripture. I, be, I don't want to be that guy that she sees, that she's experiencing. I want to be like Jesus said, come to me, and I will teach you to be gentle and humble and memorize it and begin praying it, that I want to be that guy, Jesus. I want to be like you. I don't want to be that guy. And to begin to pursue it and to begin to even be open about it. But all of that, what am I doing there is I, and by God's grace, I'm covenant keeping. Because a lot of us, when we begin to see ourselves through our spouse's eyes, we run or we shut it down or we've, you know, we'll fight about it for years. And never let, it ha- never let that happen where we actually begin to keep covenant, which I promise to be these things to you for you. I promise not to keep a record of wrong. I promise to forgive her as God has forgiven me. To not be resentful. To keep no record. To keep short accounts. To deal with our problems as they come up so they don't grow like a cancer over the years. I promised that we would do this. Love bears all things. Really? All of them? It bears all things, right? It puts up with the differences and the weaknesses and the personality and even the sin. It does it, and it doesn't do it grudgingly. It, it, it's love, which is joy, peace, and patience. And, and it bears all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And because it does, it never ends in a culture that doesn't believe that. I fell in and I'll fall out. But you're promising to love in every circumstance, rich and poor, and marriages struggle in poverty. When money is tight, it's one of the things you fight about the most. You know, when rich and poor, in sickness and in health, for better and in the worse, and especially from the worse. In fact, you're covenanting for the worse. You really don't even need a covenant if it's only for the better, and if it gets worse, it doesn't count. But no, better when it's easy, that's easy. But when it's worse, I need a covenant to bear me up. I promised. Covenanted love is willing to do whatever it takes. And this saved my marriage, I can honestly say. And those words escaped my list, my lips. What do I need to do? I will do whatever it takes. Do we need to go see a counselor? Do we need to do whatever? Do we going to sit down and hash this out? What do we need to do? 
I remember being so angry at times, standing in the, in the living room, even, you know how you have that, you know, and you don't see, and then you're standing in the other, you go to your separate corners, I'm standing in the living room, hopeless, thinking, how are we ever going to fix this? <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, where my heart is and how, where she is, like, how are we going to fix this? But in that moment, covenanted love turns to God and by his grace, it's where my heart went. God, what do I need to do to fix this? Because I'll do whatever it takes because I promised that I would do whatever it takes. And here's the thing, more often than not, what it required of me and what it will require of you is humility. To die to yourself. What it's going to require of you is to go repent and apologize and to ask forgiveness. And so many of us, when we're in that place, it's the last thing we're going to do. But this is covenanted love. What's it going to require? I'm going to say is one of the applications. You, you, when, you're, when you're standing in the living room and you're so angry or you're wherever you are, what you should be thinking about is not what she has done or how she has failed to keep covenant. What you need to do in that moment is before God. Obviously, I'm doing something. What, what do I need to do, oh God, to fix this and to make it right, to keep covenant? And there's a high price for a marriage to succeed, for a marriage to live, and even for a marriage to thrive. There's a high personal price. We'll spend a whole week talking about that price. Marriage changes us. But if you're doing it the right way, repenting and confessing and forgiving and living the gospel, it makes you more like Jesus. And in that moment in the living room where I'm not very much like Jesus at all, you know, in that moment when I ask him and he says, you need to get on your knees and go back to your wife and tell her you've been a jerk and ask her forgiveness and pledge your love to her that you're going you're gonna to be a better husband tomorrow. And by his grace, you're going to go relentlessly pursue your wife. Let me just give you a couple of quick applications as we go. If, if that's not enough, I think there's a lot in there to take home. But let me just give you a few. First of all, there's a set of vows that are printed in your bulletin with 1 Corinthians 13. I would encourage you to take those home and read through them and pray through them. And ask God, where am I not keeping covenant? Where am I a covenant breaker? Where am I not faithfully and to the best of my ability keeping my vows? Where in 1 Corinthians 13 am I, am I not loving the way God calls me to love? And if you are a person of great courage and thick skin, ask your wife or your husband only do this if you're in a, in a, in a certain place. That's them where you're not keeping it, where you're not loving well. Number two is to do this. Understand that your job is to keep your vows. Your job is to keep your vows. Right? You got to keep this center in it. You know, you're... You made a solemn promise before a holy God, and, and your job is the vows you made. You are responsible for God, who is your witness, right? So your, your job is not to police your spouse's promise, which is where we love to live, right? That's when we make it a list, when, when we're breaking the one where it says, keep no record of wrongs. It usually where we're keeping, that's where we're keeping the record of wrongs is when we're policing their promises and we're making our list. You focus on you. 
You seek the grace and power to be a promise keeper. You keep your vow. You love and honor no matter what she does, no matter what he does. Whether he keeps his vow or she keeps his vow or not is, is irrelevant between you and God and the God who says, I was a witness at the promises you made. Do what's right because it's right. Do what's right because it honors God. Not because your spouse has earned it. They'll never earn it. We don't earn it. We don't, and this is the thing, we don't earn it from God. (laughs) They don't earn it from us. But he loves us anyway. Praise be to God. He loves us anyway. And so remember that it's not just about you and your spouse. God stands as a witness. He's the covenant enforcer. When we're faithless to our spouse, we're faithless to him. When we fail to love our spouse, it's a failure to honor him, to image him, to serve him, to be like him. In all the ways that we live before him, to fail to keep covenant and to love her is a failure to love and to honor him. And that's why when we go to our different corners, like in the boxing ring, and we go to our different corners and and wipe the sweat and the blood, you know, it is essential in that moment to see that this is all about following Jesus. To learn to follow him when you're angry at your spouse. To learn to follow him when you're fighting, when it's hard. To learn to follow him in those moments. To still follow Jesus and to want to be like him. To return evil with good, not return evil with evil. To serve the Lord Christ and rededicate yourself to be a lover. Let me close with just this last thought. If you hear nothing else, I'm going to give you like three minutes and just try to, uh, in the end, to hear this. God made a covenant with us in Christ. Formal, structured relationship. Right? He entered into a relationship with us and Jesus comes as the surety of that covenant. And the shedding of his blood, when we take communion, when he hands the cup to them, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, God covenanted in the very blood of Christ into a formal structured relationship with us where he promises to love us with an everlasting love and to forgive us and to grace us and to relentlessly pursue us. And even death will not part us. His is an eternal, relentless love. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And it is God's covenanted love to us, his relentless loving of us every day, his relentless forgiving of us and bearing with all things and and believing all things and, and not letting his love ever end. It is that covenanted love to us that is the source and the strength and the power, the possibility to even consider it. I know that you guys would look at me and say, this covenanted love that you're talking about, what you just described, I've been married a long time too, And it's a picture of God's covenant. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us, isn't it? Ephesians 5 says that the the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the relationship between God and his church. And then you would say, this picture that you're painting for me, it it is beyond me. I can't do that. And I understand it's only someone who's been married for 30 years who can say, I get it. It can be hard. 
But it is only, and I can say before God, only as we experience his relentless love and grace. Only when we as branches are tapped into the vine and abiding there and tasting and seeing that he is good and that he's not forsaken me and he loves me again today and he bears with me again today and he forgives me again today and he fills me with his spirit fresh today. He is with me and he never leaves me nor forsakes me today that I can go forth and relentlessly pursue my wife and, and to not give up doing good and returning evil with good. Apart from Jesus, my friends, you can do nothing. And it's true. I get it. And if you believe that with all your heart, you'll also believe that by his grace and strength, you can do all things. And you can grow in the way that you love your spouse and keep covenant. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not experienced the covenanted love of God in Christ. I would just encourage you that his love that is unconditional and gracious that comes to us in Christ. And he says, I will have a formal relationship with you where Jesus will pay for all of your sins and in Christ you can be forgiven and enter into my love and be adopted into my family and I will love you forever and I'll never leave you nor forsake you and I'll love you and all those things that we've described, he says he will be to us. And if you've not experienced that love, I encourage you Put your faith and your trust in Christ who will bring you by his death into the forgiveness and mercy of God and enter into a relationship that will never end, not even in death. Love never ends. Covenanted love is binding, durable, unconditional, beautiful, powerful, and full of beauty that our selfishness and our selfish approach to things would never, ever be able to provide. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning confessing that this faithfulness in keeping covenant is a bridge too far for us by ourselves. We cannot get there. But, oh, Father, I pray that you would come near and help us day by day to live in covenant with you. That day by day we would experience your grace and your love and your mercy and your forgiveness, your forbearance in all things in such a way that we are set free to love our spouses and to die to ourselves and to repent and give ourselves away and to keep covenant before you in a way that brings blessing. We ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.